The following podcast is a She Did It and SydneyNanberg.com production. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the She Did It podcast. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Sydney Nanberg, creator of the She Did It podcast and SydneyNanberg.com, the brand and resource and community where I share self-care tips with a twist and mindset hacks to help you become the best version of yourself. My intention is for you to come looking for inspiration and leave with the tools that you need to face obstacles and live a more fulfilling life. I'm always sharing what has worked for me and I hope you guys find this valuable. Today, I get to speak with someone who is a leadership and performance advisor and someone who has overcome some major challenges in life. I remember him all the way back from the world-famous book, The Secret. He has a Netflix documentary, Enlighten Us, and is a New York Times best-selling author of the book, Harmonic Wealth. He has been featured on Oprah, Larry King, and now here today, we have James Arthur Ray. So I hope you guys love this episode just as much as I did. so much for being here today i'm really excited welcome to she did it well i'm excited too sydney thanks so much for having me of course so you've done so much to inspire others you've inspired me you've been through a lot you've overcome a lot and i want to learn about your journey your story life challenges attracting what you want and pushing through to get what you want in life and i know that you face some obstacles but i'm interested in your mentality and how to achieve your goals. I think that's something that people really struggle with and how to pick yourself up after facing struggles. So let's get started. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your story and your background. Um, I'll do my best to abbreviate it because my story is a, a galloping, uh, crazy roller coaster adventure. And uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, in fact, I talk you know, quite extensively about it in my upcoming new book, The Business of Redemption. But I'll, I'll give you the, the kind of the crib notes, and then you can flesh out what you'd like. I, I grew up in a household of a Protestant minister, very dynamic, uh, somewhat overbearing Protestant minister in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is the buckle of the Bible belt, and uh, Christian household, obviously. And I was always quite inquisitive. Uh, and I was also very much uh, introverted, shy, and had a low self-image. So you and I have a little bit of a common background because right. I was that skinny, skinny, scrawny, buck-tooth, thick glasses guy who was bullied a lot and made fun of when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to make matters worse, I was the son of this very dynamic um, Protestant minister, and so consequently, uh, I just never felt good enough. And I sequestered myself in my bedroom and started trying to find the answers to life uh, at a very, very early age. And, and I love my dad. I have no disrespect for him. He's, he was actually one of my, he was my first mentor and teacher. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he taught me was to read a lot. And so I started really, really early because I wasn't getting the answers that I was asking the questions to. And right. my, my traditional um, church and, and environment that I was in quite frequently. And so um, anyway, I, I picked up the Buddhist Bible, believe it or not. Interesting. When I, well, yeah, which kind of tells you I was a weird kid in the house of a Protestant minister when I was about 18 years old. And I, because I was looking again for answers beyond just have faith and just believe and do it because, mm-hmm. and, and I, I don't want to disrespect Christianity. I have the utmost respect for every spiritual tradition. And yet I just wasn't getting the answers. So I started studying that and that led me into studying all the, the world's great religions. And then during the same time, I went into business with AT&T mm-hmm. in sales, and I, I studied behavioral sciences in college because I was very fascinated with how the mind works and why we do what we do. And all of these things I was doing, Sydney, were because I thought that if I could figure it out, I could fix myself right. and my life better. And so... Um, 
I was in sales at AT&T and I did really well. And on my second year anniversary, I got promoted to be a sales trainer. And then from there, um, I became, went into man, various management positions and ended up at AT&T School of Business as a C-suite consultant working with CEOs and leaders at AT&T to develop leadership, communication, um, team performance, and all of those things which companies need. And that, that was my, my business background. And I, I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to AT&T uh, for, for all of those experiences because they, they serve me to this, this day, obviously. And so um, from there, I left AT&T School of Business in 92, and I, I started my own consulting company. Wow. It was called the Quantum Consulting Group, because by that time, I had branched out to studying uh, not only spiritual traditions but in business, but also psychology and biology and, and quantum physics. I'm a huge fan of to this very day. And... So I started my first company, the Quantum Consulting Group, and was basically doing, you know, cultural change and, and interventions around leadership and performance within companies for the first several years. From there, um, I started to do uh, a lot of keynote presentations at corporate events. But, I, but the keynote arena, you know, anywhere from half an hour to an hour and a half, I got a little hungry because I thought, you know, how much real transformation can you bring to someone? Well, you can give them some ideas or some inspira inspiration, but transformation takes work. Right. And so I wanted to do something deeper, and I moved into my very first public event in 98 and really lived, you know, hand to mouth from, from 98 until about 2006. And I... I was right smack dab in the middle of the entrepreneurial struggle. And if any of your listeners um, are entrepreneurs, which I'm assuming they are, yeah. then they know what that means. And, you know, I was playing uh, entrepreneurial solitaire, which is where you take all your credit cards and throw them out on the bed and try to figure out which one has a balance left on it. Um, just, to, yeah. <laughs> just to stay afloat and, and borrow money from my parents. And I mean, it was a rough ride and I won't go into all the details, but uh, I almost quit several times and, and just wanted to throw in the towel. And then in 2006, uh, well, actually 2005, I was a member of, I was a founding member of a mastermind group called the Trans Transformational Leadership Council, and this woman by the name of Rhonda Byrne came, yep. came to one of our meetings and pitched us with this idea for a movie and got filmed. And by the way, you know, none of us got paid for that. A lot of people don't know that, I don't think, but it was a labor of love and, mm -hmm. and got filmed for that. And then in 2006, it went gangbusters. And uh, I was on Oprah several times and Larry King and the Today Show once a month and and just on and on. You know, my my last book, Harmonic Wealth, was a New York Times bestseller in the first five days of its release. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it blew me away. It was so far beyond anything I'd experienced or anything I could have imagined. And I, you know, I had uh, uh, over a million people come to my live events and I from 145 different countries around the world and it was just it was a dream come true and then as you mentioned uh, I hit I hit a big wall or a, or a big wave tsunami hit me actually in 2009 I was conducting an uh, experience in Sedona Arizona a five-day deep dive into our formative years, which is where psychology tells us most of our programming and conditioning happens between birth and 13. Mm -hmm. And those unconscious issues, that they, again, according to psychology, drive about 90 to 95% of our behavior. And so if and when we can make the unconscious conscious, then we can heal that, integrate it, literally set ourselves free. And so we were doing some real intimate it was a very small event 
by my standards, because by that time I had spoken to 17,000 people in arenas and, and, you know, had regularly 1,500 to 2,000 people at minimum in my events. And, and this event had 500 and I'm sorry, 50. And so it was real up close and personal. And I was working very specifically with these individuals on helping them uncover those things, but more importantly, heal them and release them and integrate them so that they would empower them versus disempower them. Well, at the end of that five days, um, we had a little graduation experience called a sweat lodge. If you're familiar, it comes from a lot of traditions, you know, not the least of which Native Americans, but it actually goes all the way back to to ancient Greece, if not earlier, and, mm-hmm. and many traditions have used the sweat lodge as a metaphor for dying to the old and rebirthing to the new. And so we had done this for three years running, and it had been incredibly, five years running actually, and it had been incredibly exciting and empowering for all the participants, even though it's tough. And in that experience in 2009, someone horribly wrong. We don't know to this day exactly what happened because, unfortunately, the state of Arizona didn't do any blood work or follow up on any blood analysis. But mm-hmm. it appears uh, I from the doctor from Harvard who went through 4,000 pages of medical evidence, and he, he testified uh, under oath that it was probably uh, poisons, most specifically uh, pesticides, which if you do a quick Google search, you know, those are deadly in the human system. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, un- um, unfortunately, the state of Arizona um, charged me with manslaughter, which is incredibly ludicrous, particularly as a business person. You know, I can't imagine any um, any principle of a business intentionally harming clients and thinking they're going to stay in business. <laughs> right. Right. So, I mean, manslaughter is intentional harm. Um, but the reason they did that was really a, a political shuffle because it included a lesser. And so I've learned a lot about the legal system and what the legal system does. Uh, unfortunately is they go, you know, high and hope to get at least something in the middle. Right. And, and so anyway, long short, I got charged with negligence. And I just want to go on record and say um, that I've learned a lot, I've grown a lot, and I take full and complete responsibility for the situation. I mean, did I intentionally harm people? Absolutely not. I love those people. I mean, I, I knew them, frankly, probably more deeply and intimately than some of their closest loved ones because of the nature of the program. It broke my heart. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was the antithesis of everything that I stood for. I wanted to help people, not hurt them. And to have, if you can imagine, if you've ever lost someone you care about, the feeling of that alone is overwhelming. It, 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 It would have been more, more than enough. Um, but I do want to say very clearly, I take full responsibility because that's the price of leadership. You know, did I do it intentionally? No. Um, but you know, think there were things that could have been done better. There were things that were missed. Um, it was my team that was carrying out the, the experience and I hired them. They reported to me, um, it, we had contingency plans and, and those were, ultimately, you know, my company's contingency plans. And so at the end of the day, as the leader of any company, and I I want to speak to every single entrepreneur out there, when something goes sideways, you don't throw your team under the bus, you don't blame, and you don't dodge. You step up and you take full responsibility because that's the price of leadership. And if you can't do that, then you better think twice and maybe just step down because that's, you know, again, a big part of my new book, The Business of Redemption, the subtitle is The Price of Leadership. And the price is high. So I got charged with negligence. I went to prison uh, for two years and 
I came out in 2013 and I was homeless because I, I lost everything. I lost my, my Inc. 500, $10 million company that it took me 20 years to build. Um, by the way, seven day a week, 20 years. Um, mm -hmm. I lost my, all my life savings. I lost my, my, all my, um, my properties, including my home. I, I lost all my so-called friends who tucked out and ran and um, basically bailed because the media, if, if you were connected to that time, Sydney just went crazy with this. It was a, a perfect layup to, you know, take down the supposed big dog in personal development and, um, mm -hmm. and leadership. And so anyway, I lost all of that and I eventually lost my liberty. And when I came out after two years, I was in very, very ill health. I had periodontal disease. I had lost 35 pounds. Um, I was homeless, literally, and I was $20 million in debt. And, wow. and you know, I was also 55 years of age. And that, you know, while that's not ancient, um, you know, by any means, it seems younger to me all the time, you know, and that's convenient for me. Um, seems probably different for you. <laughs> but <laughs> It's starting over at a, at a later point in life. Nobody wants to do that. I don't care if you're 25 right. or 55, especially not 55. You don't want to do that. And, and it wasn't just starting over because I had, you know, all this media scarlet letter on my forehead. And I was $20 million in debt. So if any of your listeners yeah. are broke right now, broke looks good to me, you know, <laughs> because yeah. 20, I had to get $20 million up to, to broke, to be broke. And, and so anyway, um, I started back and I had to get my, health in order i had to get my mind in order i was broken i was angry i you know was totally disenchanted and i had to completely reinvent myself because i came back to a world sydney uh that didn't exist when i when i right. took a six-year hiatus starting in 2009 i mean we didn't have podcasts in 2009 right you know, we didn't have we didn't have we had social media and, and i was you know, I was an early adopter of social media, but back then we didn't even have pictures on social media. We were just doing text, even on Facebook. Right. So it's been it's been a long, hard journey, um, and I'm still standing by the grace of God, and and I'm really, really grateful. And I've done a lot of work to to heal and to forgive and to integrate. You know, the very things. Uh, ironically, and, that, and yet not so ironically, that I was teaching people in that five-day experience. Um, right. And, and I'm at the point now where I'm, I'm truly grateful. I'm not grateful that I lost three friends and clients. I mean, that still breaks my heart to this day. And that's something I'm going to have to live with and carry for the rest of my days. And that being said, I'm grateful for what I've learned. I'm grateful that I feel like I'm more awake and alive. I'm grateful that I was able to practice what I had studied and what I had taught. And I can't imagine any, any other situation, don't even want to imagine it, where <laughs> I could have um, had the opportunity to practice any more than I did in this one. So um, anyway, here we are. So hopefully. Yes. So what was your, I'm curious, what was your first step that you took? You know, you're in this new position, this new life in this, you know, obstacle. What was the first step that you took or what was the first thing that you told yourself to get yourself, you know, going and back on your feet? Um, well, you know, that's a, it's a great question. I think, I mean, there were a myriad of things, but, but I think the, I, I realized that your external world is a is a projection of your internal world and so the first thing i told myself was that i had to i had to heal 
I had to become self-aware. I had to forgive. I had to take care of me because, you know, I think you come out of a crisis. And, and a lot of people, let's face it, a lot of people are, are facing that today, Sydney. I mean, every, every 20 minutes in our world, someone commits suicide. Every yeah. 20 minutes, Sydney. And, and for everyone. And that's who, one of my goals to help prevent that. Yeah. Well, good on you. And, and everyone who is, quote, successful at taking their own lives, there are 20 more people who attempt and, fa quote, fail. So, you know, one out of six Americans are on some kind of psychological antidepressant drug right now. Um, right. One out of 13 Americans abuse alcohol, by the way, starting at age 14. And so there's a lot of people facing crisis in our world today. And when I say I'm grateful, you know, one of the things I'm grateful for, you know, is, is what I've been through because it gives me so much more compassion and so many more tools and resources to be able to help those who are doing the same thing. You know, I, I remember I've worked with a Zen master for the better part of nine years. And he was just so solid for me during the whole meltdown. And there was a point where I, was, I just said to him, hey, I just can't take this anymore. I just can't do it. And, and he said to me, James, Yes, you can. He said, ask for more. Now, there were some pretty colorful words that came up in my mind when he said that. <laughs> I, didn't express, I didn't express them. You have zero compassion. But the fact is, he was right because more kept coming and coming and coming. And then he went on to say, you know, and, and like I said, I started studying Buddhism when I was 18. I don't consider myself a Buddhist, mm -hmm. but, I'm, but I'm fond of every tradition. And there's a concept in Buddhism called the Bodhisattva. Okay. No, what, what is that? A bodhisattva is an individual who becomes very awake in life. Most people are asleep. Um, you know, one of my heroes, Leonardo da Vinci, said, I woke up only to find that the rest of the world was completely asleep. And he, mm -hmm. he was so right. But the Bodhisattva is someone who finally wakes up and sees clearly and experiences and feels clearly. And then he or she makes a choice to, to stay and to commit his or her life to easing, and hopefully eliminating the pain and suffering of mankind. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing about the vow that the Bodhisattva takes, is when he or she takes that, they know they're not going to succeed, you know, <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. to, to save all men's, men's suffering. I mean, that's a, right. that's a big order with, with, you know, 8 billion people. Um, right. <laughs> so they know they're not going to succeed, but they commit to it anyway. And so back to my conversation with Roshi, he said, ask for more. And then he continued on. He said, James, if you ever hope to have an opportunity to be a bodhisattva in this lifetime, which I'm not saying I am, but that was his terminology. He said, this is it. This is it. He said, because how can you help the suffering of mankind? If you haven't suffered, and I'm like, shit, you know, I mean, he, this is a very true point. And, and, and Sydney, if you look at history, a quick perusal of history will always quickly tell you that the greatest souls throughout history have experienced the greatest suffering. I mean, you can look at, at the Buddha, you can look at the Christ, you can look at Martin Luther King, you can look at and, um, you know, name the names, um, Mahatma Gandhi, you can look at, right. uh, you know, go on and on. Um, and Nelson Mandela, uh, Mother Teresa. And, and so all the greatest souls, all the greatest teachers, all the greatest individuals throughout history have not had easy lives. No. That's the great illusion. And so my encouragement to your listener today is if, 
you are going through tough times, I'm not by any means going to minimize it because let me tell you something. While I'm grateful for my experience, I don't want to do it again. Hell no. You know, <laughs> you know I don't want to do it again um, because it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And it also was the most amazing thing I've ever been through because you can tell the greatness of a man or a woman by the greatness of the tasks they've had to face and overcome. You know, the hero is only a hero in, in all mythology and, and in, our, in our eyes, even in, in every area of the world, because he or she has overcome great challenges. There's no heroes who have had easy streams. There's just right. not. nothing in life comes easy. No, it's true. <laughs> so I want to ask you, I want to talk about the secret and the law of attraction. It's something that changed my life at a very young age. And I remember you from watching the movie on, on Netflix and it was on uh, before Netflix. So for those of you who, for those listening who don't know, what is the law of attraction? Well, the law of attraction is actually a subset of a law of the universe. So the reality is that the law of attraction is not actually a law. It's a subset of the law. And the scientific law that is the actual law is the law of vibration. Mm -hmm. And the law of vibration is a scientific law that says every single thing in this universe being comprised of consciousness and or energy has a frequency we call it in science or a vibration and the only difference between you know the phone that you're maybe holding or seated in front of or the chair or a pine tree or a Porsche or a planet or a person the only difference is the frequency or the rate of vibration it's all the same stuff and so the law of vibration as taught in the secret was greatly simplified and you know um, I have a lot of respect for the, the secret as well I mean it, it certainly brought a lot of great experiences into my life and I will say the way it was produced and put forward is really for beginners because it's much more complex than the way it's portrayed because what it states is that like attracts like. Well, if that were true, then everyone on the planet would be gay. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's partially true. And it's more complex than that. If you get into quantum physics, which I'm a huge fan of, as I told you. Yeah. Go down to the subatomic level. There's always... Um, you know, there's an atom, and you break the atom down, and the atom has a positron, which has a positive charge, and an electron, which has a negative charge, and you will never find an atom without a, without a positive charge and a negative charge. They're always, always equal pairs in this universe, and that's called the law of polarity. That's another one of the laws of the universe is the law of polarity, that every up has a down, every in has an out, every right has a wrong, you know, so on and so forth, whatever positive also has a negative. And, and here's what we know in the law of physics, is that at the subatomic level, the positron and electron are attracted to each other. Well, that seems contrary to like attracts lying, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Because they're, they're, they're opposites. And so, you know, we don't have the time to go into it today, but one of the things that I get into in my live events and with the clients that I work with is that there are multiple levels or multiple worlds, if you will, or and, and this comes right out of Princeton, John Wheeler, um, uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist, uh, coined and postulated the multiple worlds theory. And it, I mean, this is science. I mean, science is so much better than science fiction right now. And yeah. so there are multiple worlds in which we all live. And at some level, like does attract like, but not at all levels. And so when you oversimplify it, so many people say, well, it doesn't work for me. 
Well, yes, that's what I hear all the time where people say, oh, it's just positive thinking. But it, I think it's way more than that. It's not just positive thinking. Well, let me let me give a new definition for consideration of positive thinking. Positive thinking is not expecting the best. That's illusion. Hmm. Positive thinking is accepting that what is happening is the best for your future development, advancement, and growth. Did you get the distinction there? I'll, I'll repeat. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it because then you're setting yourself up for future success rather than, you know, just trying to be positive. It's not genuine. Always. If you're just, you know, it's not as genuine. No, no. It's not as real. No, and, and, you know, this whole positive thinking movement, quite frankly, Sydney, while well-intended, has created more pathology uh, yeah. and more disingenuous behavior than it's right. created positive behavior because, you know, there's the only, people who are positive all the time, quote, positive as we define it, scare the hell out of me. Yeah. You know, they're, me too. <laughs> that's not a human being. That's a droid. Yeah. Smiley face all the time. Everything is good. Never have a bad day. Well, horse hockey. Well, because you're pushing things away. Exactly. You're denying and suppressing is what you're doing. And mm -hmm. anything that is not expressed, or it, let me start over. Anything that is suppressed will be expressed in later days in uglier ways because those become those unresolved, unconscious issues that come back to haunt. And we going all the way back to our earlier conversation, 90 to 95% of what you do every day is driven by your unconscious. And so if you've got a lot of stuffed, repressed, denied things in your unconscious, those things are going to express outward in your life. So, so let me repeat that again, because I think this is vitally important. Positive thinking, yeah. expecting the best. You know, the Buddha said that the cause, that one of the major causes of all pain and suffering is that we don't see life clearly, exactly as it is. And so, you know, the leader in today's world see things as they are. They don't see them worse than they are. They don't see them better than they are. They just see them as they are. Because until you see clearly, you're not empowered to do something with it. So positive thinking is not expecting the best. Positive thinking is accepting that what is happening is the best for your future. And is that the first step to seeing things clearer so that you can make progress in your life? It, it really is. And, and that, that comes through, you know, I, I tell entrepreneurs that I'm privileged to work with that job number one of the entrepreneur is not sales, it's not marketing, it's not knowing how to read P&Ls, it's not management techniques, it's none of those things. Job number one is self-awareness. Self-awareness, mm -hmm. research tells us, is that the vast majority of people in this world have very little self-awareness. Now, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility because you've never been encouraged. I mean, think about the school system, which has failed us miserably. It's never encouraged right. you to, to explore your own gifts and genius. It's never encouraged you to think about what's your purpose in this lifetime. It's, it, it just encourages you to read, remember, and repeat, and to follow the money in the market. And, and so right. that's why Gallup- And when you do something different, then there's something wrong. There's a problem with that. Yeah. And that's a whole other issue in itself. Well, you're weird and, and or you're a misfit, but you know, misfits are right. cool people, I think. Um, I agree. You know, <laughs> no one who is normal ever made history. And right. if you tend to come, if you tend to follow the crowd, you'll get absolutely lost in the crowd. I guarantee you, you got to make waves. And if you're not making waves, you're playing in the shallow end of the pool. So right. get into the deep end of the pool, figure out who you are, embrace, embrace your feelings. And, and this, you know, um, Dan Goldman's research proves that emotional intelligence, which forgive me, Sydney. This is just research, <laughs> emotional intelligence, which people in in um, the millennial bracket and Gen Z bracket have next to no emotional intelligence. And I can see that. You know, it's a fact. They have they have a high 
what's called TQ, technological intelligence, but they have zero emotional intelligence. They can't even carry on an intelligible conversation. They don't know what their feelings are. They don't know how to connect heart to heart with other people because all they've done is live with two thumbs on a phone. And, right. and you know, and then there's social media. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I have people all the time. Well, I had a conversation with so-and-so. Oh, really? Uh, when did you, Where was it? So did you <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We were texting. That's not a right. conversation. Yeah. You know, um, so, so going back to what we have to develop, moving into this disruptive world in which is rapidly accelerating is we have to develop emotional intelligence because, you know, things are telling us, research is telling us, Forbes is telling us that 50% of the payroll jobs are going to be gone in 10 years or less. The world, you know, information is doubling every 13 months. IBM tells us that in a very short order, it'll be doubling every, every 12 weeks. And, and so there's no way any of us can keep up. And it's going to take a tremendous amount of mental toughness and emotional strength to adapt. Because uh, the other thing that research tells us is that the average individual in the workplace today is going to have to reinvent themselves a minimum of five times. Uh, over the balance of their career, minimum of five times. And so all of these things, they're, they're scary and they're frightening and they're tough. And if you don't have the emotional strength and the mental toughness, you will fight, you will fold. And that's why, again, going back to what we said earlier, there's so much suicide and there's so much drug abuse and there's so much alcohol abuse because people don't know how to cope. Right. Which is a huge problem. What is one thing that you would tell someone, you know, to build maybe a millennial, for example, how to build that emotional intelligence and how to take that first step to begin to develop that? Because I think so many people are unaware. They are unaware of it. I mean, I am a millennial myself and I do see the issue with social media and younger generations. Also, it's it's even worse and scary because people don't know how to communicate. And it's I, I don't I can't imagine what it's going to be like 10 years from now. So how do we make that change? Well, I think the first step is what I call beginning at the beginning. And we have to be able to go back to our earliest remembrance of our life and begin to ask ourselves some real deep questions. What have I always been attracted to? What have I naturally been good at? You know, what would I do without any kind of remuneration whatsoever? You know, if money were no issue, what would I do? You know, all of those types of things. And, and again, all the things I'm talking about, and because of time, I'm not going to quote all the sources, but there's research out there on all of this. And you have a greater opportunity to make more money, which everybody thinks is going to solve their problem. But I'm telling you, right. When I was running a $10 million business and I had, I had 15 plus million in the bank, I didn't have less problems. I had more problems mm-hmm. because, because the bigger you play, the bigger the challenges, period. So right. get over the illusion, see things clearly and step back and recognize and realize that the millennial generation and Gen Z is the first generation in the history of, of our modern history of America that is, is documented to probably make less money than their parents. Now, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> to burst your bubble because <laughs> all these people on social media, oh, make a million dollars in two months on social media. Well, check them out. Check them out. Oh, I know. I can't stand when I see that. Yeah, just download these three easy steps, you know, and become a best-selling author and a speaker. Well, check them out. You know, how many people can they point to that they've trained that have done that? Not many. And, and so so here's, here's what's really important. You know, at the end of the day, we are here not just for money. We're here for meaning. And I'm not anti-money by any means whatsoever. 
um, mm -hmm. because we have to have money in today's society to be able to pursue our meaning and to do things. But at the end of the day, what we really want is a meaningful and fulfilled life. We want to do something significant. We want to feel like we matter. And so right. begin at the beginning and forget all the programming of socialized mind of what's sexy and cool and think about what have I always been attracted to because chances are great the things you've been attracted to and the things you had natural gifts at I call that your unique genius and when you go after your unique genius you have a greater probability to make more money because you have a chance to become masterful at it you know not everyone is meant to be a, a best-selling author Right. Right. No, that makes complete sense. So I have one more question. So I'm big on routines and I know routines play a lot into our lives. Do, do you have a daily routine or a routine that you that you swear by that that you fit into your schedule? A absolutely. And this is researched as well, whether you look at research of those who have a high degree of mastery or you look at elite performers like a, a Steve Jobs or a Stephen King, right. you know, name the name, an Oprah Winfrey. Um, I have a very strict routine. And okay. I live my life primarily on what psychology calls automaticity. And automaticity just means that you habituate something so it happens automatically. There's a phenomenon in today's world called, a psychological phenomenon called decision fatigue. And mm -hmm. the challenge is that we are making so many decisions about mundane things that when it comes to making big decisions, you know, our willpower is tapped. You know, the decision-making muscle takes willpower, and when you're constantly deciding what to eat, what to wear, what time to get up, you know, right. mundane things, then you're deple depleting your willpower. And even the most willful of us has a finite amount of will before it has to be replenished. And so I'll just give you a, a quick, at least, overview of my routine. I get up at 3 a.m. every morning. Uh, wow. I just, That's early. It, it is early. I love mornings. I, I got, Me too, though. I got up at 4 a.m. for years and years and years and years. Um, I, I reeled it back to 3 a.m. recently, so, you know, it's almost 10 o'clock here now, which means I've been up and at it for seven hours already. Okay. So, you know, while everyone else is, is, you know, hugging the mattress, I'm accomplishing my purpose. I get up at 3 a.m., the first thing I do is I drink a big, you know, eight, 10-ounce glass of water with fresh squeezed lemon, which helps detox the liver and helps rehydrate my body because we get dehydrated overnight. And that's right, right. next to my bed stand. I don't have to think about it. I sit up and I drink it. And then, of course, I do the brush the teeth thing. And then I go to the kitchen and I make my morning drink and I put out my morning supplements and I, t I drink that and I take those. And then from there, I go do yoga and, and I do yoga postures following mm -hmm. from there i go meditate or practice a mindfulness technique which i've done since i was 18 years old and i do that for 20 to 30 minutes and then from there i get up and i go and i drink my my one coffee of the day a double espresso with with coconut milk and mm -hmm. And which fires up the brain and gets the you know neurotransmitters going. And then I come in and I sit down on my computer. And by the way, Sydney, I have not looked at my phone one time. I love that. The entire time. I forgot one piece. I, I also read for about 20 minutes. When I first get after I drink my drink, I read for 20 minutes. Then everything else follows the morning drink and the meditation and the yoga. And I have not looked at my phone, I have not checked my email. That time is my time. That's what I call my prime objective, which is to take care of me. Because when I take care of me first, then I have more to give to you. And right. 
that's you know that just makes sense. You can't give what you don't have. And so so now I sit down on my computer. I write a morning blog, mini blog every day on social media. I hope your listeners will too go check it out. Uh-huh. It's called Triple Espresso because I want it to be a hard hitting shot in the morning. Uh, yes, makes sense. My podcast. Um, which I do every day, which is a quick, you know, podcast um, I do every day. And then from there, I work on my bigger blog, which comes out once a week on my website. It's a, le- a blog on leadership. And, and by the way, all these things we're talking about, in my opinion, are leadership issues. Because the leader of the future has to lead his or her own life first before right. you can lead a business and lead others. And if you can't do that, then you're not really the leaders that we need moving forward. Um, so then I work on my blog, and from there I push up back from my desk, and I go to the gym. So I'm at the gym between 6.30 and 7 every day, and I get a good hour and a half workout, come home, uh, shower, eat breakfast, and then I normally don't have – any meetings or do any podcast interviews before 11 o'clock. Yours is an exception. And the re- Thank you. <laughs> well, it's, you're welcome. And the reason it works for you today is because Fridays, uh, I don't go to the gym. I have a personal trainer that I work with at 11 o'clock on Fridays. So I have a lot more time in the morning on Fridays because I don't actually go to the gym on my own. You know, I'm going to go see my personal trainer who will kick my butt she she she's ranked number 45 in the world oh my gosh fitness and i love personal trainers because they really they make you do what you have to do and there's no slacking off yeah she's a beast and if any of your listeners follow me on instagram from time to time i post you know posts of she and i working together and and she just runs me through the mill i I have kind of this this anticipation and and feeling of dread every day that I'm going to work with her. Of course. <laughs> I can, I understand that. I get that feeling too, just from going to a, a, a boot camp class. <laughs> yeah. Well, you never regret it. So, so anyway, that's my morning. I won't go on, but, but my objective is to get more accomplished in the morning than most people do in an entire day. And, and frankly, According to what research is telling us, the average individual spends about 50% of his or her day in distraction. And yeah. then they wonder while they end up, why they end up at the end of their life and they don't feel like they've accomplished anything. It's so true. You know, I, I, re- I read a lot about morning routines and I'm a huge morning person. I love to wake up early. If I wake up at four o'clock in the morning, I'm happy. If I wake up at five in the morning, I'm happy. And by nine o'clock, I already have more done than you know most people I know and it's not that I'm in competition with anyone else but I love that feeling of feeling accomplished in the morning and knowing I have the whole day ahead of me however I also believe that taking that time in the morning to yourself and not jumping right to your phone is important because it helps you to make better decisions throughout the day and it makes you you it makes you able to take care of other people or like for me I have a company so my other clients and if I don't have that time to myself I start to get really overwhelmed and so many people are just so quick to wake up the first thing they do is check their phone yeah that's a problem well it is a problem and and let's go back and talk about the one out of six who use antidepressants and the one out of 13 who abuse alcohol right you are sitting at dinner with another human being and you are on your phone you're an biggest pet peeve you're an addict yeah. If you get up in the morning and the first thing you have to do is look at your phone, you're an addict. And the fact is that we get, you know, if you look at, at neurosciences, which I'm a fan of too, you get a, a spike of dopamine when when you get a like or somebody says something about you on social media. I mean, that's what we literally are addicted to our social media because of the dopamine spikes. And it's, it's a lesser version of being addicted to cigarettes because cigarettes give you dopamine spikes. Alcohol right. gives you dopamine spikes, you know, and, and you go, oh, James, really? You're being 
too dramatic. No, I'm not. And, and I've been there, you know, there, I had to, had to discipline myself to not get on my phone and start answering emails because I, you know, I have a plethora of work to do in the, you know, the minute I get up in the morning and I sleep six hours. And I think, you know, if you're sleeping more than six hours, you need to sleep faster. And there's a lot, yeah. of, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of research out there as well. A lot of people want to talk about, oh, you need eight hours, you need nine hours. You can find whatever you want to find. But the latest research tells us that they don't know. Even the National Sleep Foundation, when asked how much sleep a person needs, they say, we don't know. All we know is that children and dogs need more. Well, none of us are a, chill, a child or a dog. So right. I think we need to get enough sleep. But if you sleep eight hours a night, you're literally sleeping 33% of your life away. I actually think you end up more tired, too. I mean, personally, I don't sleep in. I don't know how to sleep in. I'm not able to sleep in. I don't love to sleep like so many people. So, but when I like times where if I've been sick or, or I, and I do sleep a little bit longer, I feel more tired. I just, I, I yeah. feel tired. I, I, get not- I get it. And, and going back to why a lot of people want to sleep is the same reason a lot of people use alcohol and, and marijuana. And say it's an escape. It's an escape. escape mechanism from the pain and suffering of the world of, of life. So the idea is just to kind of push through it, do what you have to do, wake up and, and see clearer is the message. Well, yes. And let me just nuance that because um, push through it to me kind of implies, and I'm not saying you intended to imply this, that we stuff it. And that's that's not not healthy. You know, what I had to learn in solitary confinement, which I spent the better part of a month and a half in solitary confinement right next to death row. Um, I guess because I was so dangerous, I don't know. But, um, and I'm being being sarcastic, but. Yeah, no, no, I know. But, but, you know, I had to sit in my own pain because I was in a 10 by 12 with no television, no books, no writing instruments, no nothing, just me, four walls, a concrete slab that they call a bed, and God in my own consciousness. And, and so what I learned is that all emotions are, are temporary. You know, you can't, you know, people who say, I want to be happy all the time. No one is happy all the time. They're just not. That's just not, that's just not realistic. You know, right. emotions come and go. That's another law of the universe called the law of rhythm. Things come, they go. And, and so, so the same is true of suffering or pain or fear or anger. And what I learned experientially sitting in solitary confinement is that I couldn't run. I couldn't, I couldn't run to a book. You know, my escape mechanisms typically are I'm going to read a good book that is going to teach me something and inspire me. Well, that's an escape mechanism too. What I had to do was just sit and with my anger and what i found is that when i would not resist it that goes back to positive thinking is accepting what is happening is the best when i would just accept it and go you know i'm just really pissed off right now and and i just sit with it i didn't i didn't act on it and that's the key you you need to experience all the human emotions but you just don't want to act on all of them you know, I mean, acting on anger. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's not <laughs> to get you into some trouble. <laughs> right, it's not productive. But you can feel it, and you can experience it. And what you will do when you stop resisting it is you realize it'll go away. It'll pass. And, and so, so when you're in, when you're in the heat of the moment, whatever the issue might be, it's better instead of turning to maybe a journal, instead of turning to a book, instead of turning to something else, to actually just t- like take some time, sit down and accept what you're feeling. And, and that's what you're saying, just to kind of accept it, acknowledge it, feel it and let it pass yeah. naturally. Yes. And that, that's the best way. Now, I will tell you, you mentioned the journal. And yes. I use a journal. I've used a journal since I was 18 years old. I've got I'm stacks, a huge journaler. <laughs> stacks and stacks and stacks of journals. Um, and it's not a diary. That's a different thing. You know, a journal is where am I right now? What am I feeling? What right. Am I if, if you can journal it, 
you know, there's, there's two things, two, two prong answer to your question. You know, for me, if I can go into my meditation room, which I have a library that's devoted just to that, into reading, and I can go sit in my chair and just breathe from my gut, which they call the Dantian in China, or they call the Na'ao in the, in the Huna tradition of the South Pacific. If you can breathe from your core, which there are neurological connections in our gut, that's a whole other conversation, and breathe out through your heart, which we know has cognitive capacity based upon research now, and, and breathe into your gut, out through your heart, and just let the feeling be there. That's a great way to just let it move through. Then the other way that's really good is, is journaling, because when you put it out on a page, you're literally, um, you know, if you go all the way back to ancient Egypt, which I've been blessed to, to do a lot of work and study in that culture, mm-hmm. they had a concept called spell casting. And, and everybody's like, oh, my God, spell casting, how mystical. Not really, <laughs> because the way it was originally originally defined was they would chisel the first letters, the first words were chiseled in stone. So they were literally cast, spelling cast into stone, if you follow. And so uh-huh. the thing you can do with a journal is, is let's call it spell cat. You get it out. And when it comes out onto a page, it automatically starts to diminish and minimize. And maybe if you're a journaler, you've experienced that. You know, and I say better out than in. So you can breathe through it and pass through it, or you can you can write it out and breathe at the same time and just get it out on page on page. And, and both of those things are incredibly powerful. And if you will take three, five, seven, ten minutes to do that, even if you're super busy, then you can go back to work with a clear head and a much more creative state of mind and be much more productive. You know, I do. So I, I'm a big journaler. Like I said, I journal in the morning, I journal at night. And then if something ever comes up, I have like a smaller journal that I carry with me everywhere. And even if in the morning and if at night, I'm just, I don't really have much to journal about. I put whatever is in my mind out there because I feel that I sleep better. I feel like I'm able to handle um, situations better. And I feel like I, it reduces my stress and anxiety if I just get it out there. To me, it's like a great form of, of meditation. It, it is, and his name slips me right now, but there was a great Eastern master, and the only practice he had, he didn't do any sitting meditation. All he did was journal. So you're really on the solution. Uh, th- that's my thing. That's totally my thing. So I want to end this with three tips. So what are three tips for creating the life that you want? Okay. Um, tip number one, self-awareness. Sound familiar? I mean, (laughs) get to know you. Build a relationship with you because you'll never, ever have a perfect relationship with another human being until you first and foremost have a perfect relationship with yourself. And that's the advice I give to anyone starting a business or if you want to find your, your future husband, wife, whatever it is. Build the relationship with yourself first. Self awareness, develop that emotional intelligence. Number two, find your unique gifts and genius, which we talked about, go, go right. begin at the beginning and ask yourself the question, what have I always been good at naturally? What have I been attracted to naturally? And, you know, then how can I utilize that gift, which, again, research proves you'll be much more productive and way happier when you're using your gifts. And then number three Align that with your purpose. What's my purpose in this lifetime? Purpose is always about contribution. It's not about giving. It's about giving. You know, service is the rent we pay for the privilege of life. And we're all here to serve. And that's what your purpose is focused on, is how am I going to contribute? How am I going to take my self-awareness, who I am, and take that my and, and align that with my unique gifts and genius, and then put that into a purpose that will help me contribute to the world. And then I'll do a subset and maybe it's a four, Sydney, I'm sorry, fourth point, but no good. <laughs> the last one is, is commit to mastery because you are here to be masterful. 
you are have the opportunity to be great and you're not going to be great when you're chasing socialized mind and everything that society tells us is sexy and glamorous and glittery you're going to be great when you're chasing your god-given gifts and your god-given purpose and that's where greatness and mastery comes in and then just go do it commit your whole life to it I love that. I've been, I was taking notes throughout this whole podcast. This has been so inspiring and I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to speak and I really appreciate you coming onto the podcast today and, and telling us your story and giving us your insight. It's really powerful and I hope that it can help a lot of people and I wish you nothing but continued success and I can't wait to see everything that you come out with. I'm also going to link all of your information in the podcast description, but Thank you so much again, James. This has been wonderful. Sydney, it's, it's been great working with you. You know, I'll just tell you, um, I've, I've done a lot of interviews with some of the best of the best. Um, you know, obviously Oprah, Larry King, and, and many, many more. And there's some great interviewers, and there's some who are really horrific. And you're, you're good. You're really good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you're really good. So keep doing great work. Thank you so much.